Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, one of our most popular days in the convention, a chance to hear the talking book narrator uh, close and personal here. Certainly this is a smaller room than where she last spoke to us, so it's certainly a much more intimate environment in that regard. I want to uh, remind you that this is a joint meeting of several ACB affiliates. I'm Brian Charlson, president of Library Users of America. I'm going to try to get this roving mic to turn on here. One Mississippi, it's working. And I'm Paul Edwards, president of the Braille Revival League. And I think Kate's in the front row. Hold on. That's okay. No, I'm here. I'll get you. I'm right here. So, um, I'm Kate Crohan. I teach at Perkins, and I'm um, immediate past president of the AABT. So, welcome. And I don't know if any of the officers of FIA are here, but we're we're also jointly sponsored this time by Friends in Art. So we've added another group to our list. So I'm going to hold on to this until Brian tells him what to do with it. Ralph, do you want to run this around? One of the traditions we tend to have in our meetings is we'd like to know who's in the room. My uh, name is Josette Kernahan. I'm from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Okay. Oh, I already had it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Ralph Smitherman from Brandon, Mississippi. I'm Desi Noller from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm Don Noller from Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, I'm Saja, and I come from Hawaii. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Denise Decker from Washington, D.C. This is Kira Larkin from Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> Hello. This is Kim Charlson. From Watertown, Massachusetts, and I'm the I'm going to give my other title because I'm in Lua. I'm the executive director of the Perkins Braille and Talking Book Library, which is the Massachusetts NLS affiliated network library. I'm Judy Dixon. I'm Consumer Relations Officer at the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped Library of Congress. Donna Siren, St. Louis, Missouri. I'm Michael Garrett from Missouri City, Texas. I'm the treasurer of Lua, Texas. I'm Judy Wilkinson. I'm president of the California Council of the Blind and vice president of LUA and board member of BRL. 
Hi, I'm Alice Turner from uh, California. Rob Turner, California. Dennis Hamilton, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Nona Graves from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Carol Francisco, Nashville, Tennessee. Judy Jackson, Stewart Draft, Virginia. Shelly Hart, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Teresa Curry, Gonzales, Louisiana. Carolyn Burley from Canton, Ohio. Derek Lane from Morganton, North Carolina. Warren Cushman from California. You've already gotten me. You've already gotten me. My bad. You're joining us. And your name is? Rhonda Trot. Where are you from? I don't know yet. <laughs> Alabama. Doug Stipp, Minot, North Dakota. And I'm Mary Stipp from Minot, North Dakota. I think that's it thus far. Well, again, uh, I hope that Madeline now sees that we are truly the American library, right? We're the library readers throughout this country and up north a bit as well into Canada. Yes, yes. So, I don't know about you, but this is one of my favorite parts of the convention, a chance to get to know more those voices, the people behind the voices that make talking books work for us. We've been lucky over the years to be able to bring in narrators from all of the producers that produce books for NLS. Um, and some of them are pretty famous names because they've been there long enough that we're likely to have heard their voices. And then there's the classic voices. Now, I'm sure that for a narrator, um, it's perfectly okay that we all get used to their voice, but they have to use so many voices in narrating so many characters in our book that um, they might not be all that happy to know that we think of them and their voice is kind of iconic. Like, uh, did you ever go to a John Wayne movie when you didn't know it wasn't John Wayne playing that part? Jimmy Stewart would be another example of that, right? Well, there are talking book narrators that are that way as well, right? You just know that name. Many of us, when we go through the catalog to decide what we're going to read, it's highly dependent on who's doing the reading. So 
There are some, as uh, anybody who's ever worked in a library knows, that somebody was going to call on the phone and says, what do you have new read by dot, dot, dot? And luckily, the databases will let them search in that fashion. So without any more ado, let's bring one of those iconic voices to the podium here, Madeline Bizarre. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, everybody. Happy Fourth of July. What a pleasure it is to be here in Sparks, as I said this morning. It's great to be with you. And I understand there might be quite a fireworks show this evening. And so you know I have to say there will be sparks in Sparks. <laughs> it's an easy one. I had to go for it. I thought this afternoon I might talk a little bit more about the nitty-gritty of reading, what we, what we do when we get down and dirty in the American Printing House for the Blind. And, well, we do get down and dirty because we are in the basement. <laughs> and when I say we, I'm talking about, of course, the narrator, me, my monitor, and my proofreader. Now, I've been reading at the printing house since 1983. Now, they don't claim me until 1988. I don't know why, but 1983, trust me. And I have worked with many a terrific monitor and proofreader. We've done all kinds of things together. We've run with Joan Benoit. We've feasted on olives and manicotti and cupcakes and cookies with Martha Stewart. We've dieted with multiple celebrities, doctors, nurses, and a few screwballs. <laughs> and then we've burned some fat with Joyce Fidral. I don't know if you remember her. We've gone mad and many other things in Maggoty, Arkansas which I think you can do quite often. And we've also stopped the insanity with Susan Powder. Emptied the oceans. That was horrifying. And then we prepared for the complete book of fishing. Laughed and cried with so many celebrities, Betty Davis, Faye Ray, Laura Ingram, Amy Poehler, Chelsea Handler. During these past 34 years, I've gone on, I don't know, 1,500 different adventures. Some were fantastic, some great stories, great characters, great language, and then some were so brutal and gory. Well, like for example, when Rabbit Howls, which was about abuse, it was a true story about abuse, we left the studio shaking. Now for me, one of the hardest books I've, I've had trouble, I had trouble getting through was Portraits 9-11-01, which was a collection of um, a group of articles from the New York Times called Portraits of Grief. And these were stories of the lives of the people who were lost in the World Trade Center attack. Another book that was recent and also was difficult to get through emotionally was a book called A Natural Way of Things. But it was, a, it was gruesome. It was a, a story of kidnapping and abuse also. As diverse as these novels are, there is one common thread, and that's the preparation. As I said this morning, I always read through, or sometimes I'll skim through the books so that I have an idea where the characters are going to go, who they are, what parts of the world they live in, what the story is, things like that. I have been tripped up many, many times, but this one time, I called a character on page one, Gene Dupers. Then I discovered on page 105, he was French. And his name was Jean Dupré. 
Now, in the prep read, we'll mark down unknown vocabulary, words, or foreign phrases, and then we'll look through every source we have for pronunciations. We'll call universities. We've called drugstores. When I was reading Earl Mendel's Pill Bible, we needed the drugstore. Chambers of commerce, libraries. We've even called liquor stores. Well, we read a lot of cookbooks, and there were a lot of different spirits in them. You believe that, don't you? <laughs> when we finished Rab when Rabbit Howls, we needed something really badly. Early into my career at APH, I, I read a book called The Valleys of the Assassins and Other Persian Travels. It was written in 1934, and it was a travelogue by Freya Stark. Our sources for foreign language and place names back then were considerably more limited than they are now with the Internet. And our, our familiarity with the Middle East was also limited then. But by a stroke of good fortune, once again, I had a terrific monitor who was married to a man from Persia. We would have had a terrible time recording that book without him helping to interpret the Arabic names of places and villages, towns, so that I could pronounce those words as correctly as I could. We use YouTube now, but back then, what we did was call or email authors to find out how their names were pronounced, and as well as how they wanted their characters' names to be pronounced. You know, some don't even know how they want their characters' names pronounced, but most, most were very responsive. They were very helpful. We do everything we can to be as accurate as we can be. When we began, or well, yes, when we began the first of six books of the Noble Dead saga, I don't know if any of you have read those, Barb and J.C. Hendy wrote them, we wished that they had thought to include a glossary of names and languages because they created both for these vampire slayer fantasies. But there wasn't one, so we had to come up with our own. Therefore, when the character Skahilshe Ileaki spelled not at all the way it sounds, <laughs> spoken in elven tongue, Cartasij tu eche so alvar. I just followed the pronunciation guide we had created, and I really don't know what it means. Don't ask me. But it is fun to say, skahilshe liliaki. You know how they warn you to be careful what you wish for? Well, as I said, my monitor and I had wished for a glossary. And in books two and three, there were glossaries. However, the pronunciation of the characters' names and the vocabulary of their languages wasn't consistent within these glossaries. So we, we fudged a little. We used our guide from the first book, and we fused it with the authors to create a sense of continuity within the series. Now, these guides that we create for each book, well, they're not only kept for consistency with those made-up names or those foreign language names, but also for familiar words. Back when I started reading, NLS sent down preferred pronunciations. Grimace, Harris, Kilometer. And when the late Jackie Collins character, Lucky, said she was a Sant'Angelo, Tony replied, yes, you are a bona fide goddess. I remember being a real pain in the neck with friends and acquaintances because well, sometimes I'd say to them, no, 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 forte is really pronounced fort. <laughs> That's concierge, 
not concierge. And it's pedophile, not pedophile. I am surprised that I have any friends left. <laughs> but I'm much better now. And actually, you know, language is constantly evolving. Over these past 34 years, alternate pronunciations have become more acceptable and they found their way into accredited sources. When we find a pronunciation in an accredited source, we can use it. So George can grimace all he wants, Aunt Lulu can harass him all she wants, and he can drive 55 kilometers to work. And Lucky Santangelo is a bona fide goddess. You know it's deja vu or deja vu all over again. Thank you, Yogi. <laughs> and I'm constantly learning new pronunciations of words that I thought I knew. For example, nonchalant. Well, I've always said nonchalant. I cannot tell you how many times I've been stopped, and every time I want to punch the girl, but I don't, I don't. I say, you're right, I'm wrong. You're right, I'm wrong. I can say that. I'm also learning that there can be many pronunciations of words I thought I knew. For example, lingerie. <laughs> the first acceptable way to say that, the first is lingerie. Then it's lingerie, lingerie, lingerie. Then the dictionary says, popularly, which means on the dark side of the pronunciation grid. So it was there that I found lingerie. Three more pronunciations, and then the original French lingerie. Nine ways to pronounce one word. <laughs> Generally, words we come across have only two different pronunciations. Neither, neither, either, either, archivist, archivist, curator, curator, cigarette, cigarette. What we do is, well, we use the first pronunciation that comes out of my mouth. We write it down and say it that way, or we try to throughout the book. Now, why my wonderful monitor, Anna, tries really hard to keep me on the straight and narrow. If I say beloved in the beginning of the book and then say beloved later, she stops me to make the correction. And when I said that uh, Gene Dupers wasn't from Versailles, Kentucky, <laughs> we noted that, and we put old Jean Dupre back in Versailles, where he belonged. Cecil Beauregard Beecham, B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P-S, can never turn into Cecil B. Beauchamps. <laughs> no, 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 no. And the Koch brothers, K-O-C-H, aren't going to become cooks or the brothers of the late Mayor Ed Koch. <laughs> and I know you all know this, but let's go over it again. Madeline Bazard is not going to be Madeline Buzzard. <laughs> Except maybe once in a while, but no, no. Now, Anna, my monitor, also, she follows along while I read. She watches for those misreads. She'll listen for taters going to battle, totters, tatars, or detectives being mizzled by the criminals. 
misled. During the reading of one of my many historical romances, which you know we lovingly call bodice rippers, this one said in the 18th century, I read, Lucinda was surfing needlessly. 1742, I seriously doubt she was doing much surfing. But I'd say she was probably suffering needlessly. Maybe because a leopard was stalking her. Leopard? 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 All right, all right, all right. It was. Yes, it was. No one knows what goes on in a narrator's mind while they read, or any other time for that matter. The other week, while I was recording The Forgotten Girls, again, I did this this morning, so I must have wanted to rewrite this book. I read, Leland Hurley figured he had one shot before the storm cleared again and the FBI agents realized he didn't end around on them. Figured, FBI or not, they'd get hung at the border. Jurisdictional issues, confusion. Figured Canada was so big, he could get all the way to Alaska if he wanted. He liked his chances alone and on horseshoes in the middle of the mountains. Horseshoes. I got stopped because, yes, that's correct. It was supposed to be snowshoes. Where horseshoes came from, I have no idea. Now, the third person on the recording team is the APH proofreader. So when I finish reading a book, it is sent to the proofreader before it's sent to Washington and NLS's proofreaders. APH has about 29 narrators, eight monitors, and seven proofreaders at this time. The proofer's job is to watch levels, catch misreads, mispronunciations, noises that don't belong. Things that Anna and I missed while recording. One year, while recording that Earl Mendel's Pill Bible, I forgot to take off my earrings. They were little Christmas bells, and they really left a lovely tinkling sound on the recording. But nobody seemed to like that very much, so I had to re-record a few small passages. And, of course, sometimes I do forget to turn off my cell phone. (laughs) Its rock and roll riff has interrupted many a passionate scene. I finally put a sign on my microphone to remind me to turn off my cell phone. And when I speak of noises... I remember listening once to an audiobook. It was many, many years ago. I was absolutely flabbergasted to hear the narrator chugging a glass of what I presume to be water <laughs> on the tape. Well, that's how long ago it was. It was on tape. He was reading along, and then suddenly it was glug, 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 glug. <laughs> we don't do that in my studio. No, we don't. <laughs> And then let's talk about the sound of a growling stomach. Uh Uh-huh. It's humiliating. (laughs) When it occurs, it really doesn't seem that loud to your ears, but the microphone is so sensitive that it amplifies the noises to feed me. (laughs) This kind of background noise would be fine for a little shop of horrors, exactly, but not for A Course in Miracles. And besides, you know that sound of or sound effects, are not written into the specs from NLS, so they are frowned upon. At 8 in the morning when I read it, it is hard to control my stomach. 
I was reading Debbie Maycumber's Cedar Cove cookbook, and it was especially hard to control those stomach noises. <laughs> the late Janice Gray, I don't know if you've listened to her. She was a wonderful narrator, and she was a wonderful lady. She gave me a piece of advice. She said that if my stomach was becoming unruly, I should get down on my knees. So when I read a piece of cake, I did. I read the entire 499 pages, 29 hours, and 5 minutes on my knees. That controlled those stomach noises. We do try to eliminate all the extraneous sounds before you have to listen to them. It is a formidable or formidable task to keep me consistent, noiseless, and honest while recording, but all the monitors and proofreaders I have ever worked with do their jobs brilliantly. And as a consummate or consummate, thank you, I might try, as a professional that is, but I really can't do my job without them. And it is a great job. I wouldn't trade it for all the world. Consider all the fabulous books I've read. The year's best science fiction. Two editions. Four revised editions of Our Bodies, Ourselves. And then one more. Our Bodies Getting Older. The 12 books of the Owl Adventures in the Guardians of Gahul series. Or A Course in Miracles. Just to get through Gore Vidal's Myra Breckenridge was nothing short of a miracle, since he wrote it without any punctuation. <laughs> never mind the theme, never mind that. <laughs> the American Cancer Society cancer book was over 600 pages. 400, no, not 400, but it felt like it, 40 hours and 10 minutes. After completion, my monitor, Tracy and I, we had every cancer symptom we read about. Every one of them. And of course, there is no forgetting Nama's trilogy. Nama's kiss, curse, and blessing. It felt like 8,000 pages, but was really about 1,800 pages of, well, erotic adventures in all four corners of the earth. But I felt accomplishment when I finished it. I took a deep breath exhaled a gigantic sigh of satisfaction that I had just completed 71 hours of the steamiest and most explicit descriptions ever. And then I promptly lost my voice. Too much heavy breathing, I think. <laughs> Some books make us think. The nonfiction, The Lemon Tree by Sandy Tolan, was about a house in Palestine with a lemon tree in its yard. It was at first inhabited by a Palestinian family, and then by an Israeli family. Or in fiction, the book I'm reading now, A Book of American Martyrs by Joyce Carol Oates. That is about right to life and pro-choice advocates. I will be finishing that book next week. Some books are fun. Like the Maggoty series, they were fantastic. Mischief in Maggoty, old little town of Maggoty, murder in Maggoty. Most everything happened in Maggoty. <laughs> Dee Dee Barron's Bloodhound Files with vampires and were-dogs and lovable, huge gangster golems made of sand. Or the Redwall Abbey Adventures featuring talking badgers and weasels and large rabbits and one-eyed rats. Some books are just good reading for multiple reasons. The Cashmere Shawl by Rosie Thomas was a very good story. 
I remember liking King's Oak by Ann Rivers Siddons. Recently, Her Every Fear by Peter Swanson. Well, it, it was a gruesome and gory, gory story, but it had a few twists in it that made it a little more interesting than just gruesome. The Four Neapolitan Books by Elena Ferrante, beginning with My Brilliant Friend. They were just very good. And The Distant Hours by Kate Morton. Of course, there are those books which were not as good to read, but they're going to remain nameless because I have forgotten them. I brought a good one, and I'd just like to share a little bit with you today, if I may. This is The Distant Hours. This is The Distant Hours by Kate Morton. A Lost Letter Finds Its Way, 1992. It started with a letter, a letter that had been lost a long time, waiting out half a century in the forgotten postal bag in the dim attic of a nondescript house in Bermondsey. I think about it sometimes, that mailbag, of the hundreds of love letters, grocery bills, birthday cards, notes from children to their parents that lay together, swelling and sighing as their thwarted messages, messages whispered in the dark, waiting, waiting for someone to realize they were there. For it is said, you know, that a letter will always seek a reader, that sooner or later, like it or not, words have a way of finding the light, of making their secrets known. Forgive me, I'm being romantic. A habit acquired from years spent reading 19th century novels with a torch when my parents thought I was asleep. What I mean to say is that it's odd to think that if Arthur Terrell hadn't been a little more resp had been a little more responsible, if he hadn't had one too many rum toddies that Christmas Eve in 1941, and gone home and fallen into a drunken slumber instead of finishing his mail delivery, if the bag hadn't been tucked in his attic and hidden until his death some 50 years later, when one of his daughters unearthed it and called the Daily Mail, the whole thing might have turned out differently. For my mom, for me, and especially for Juniper Blythe. You probably read about it when it happened. It was in all the newspapers on, and on the TV news. Channel 4 even ran a special where they invited some of the recipients to talk about their letter, their particular voice from the past that had come back to surprise them. There was a woman whose sweetheart had been in the RAF. And the man with the birthday card his evacuated son had sent. The little boy who was killed by a piece of falling shrapnel a week or so later. It was a very good program, I thought, moving in parts, happy and sad stories interspersed with old footage of the war. I cried a couple of times, but that's not saying much. I'm rather disposed to weep. Mom did go on the show, though. The producers contacted her and asked whether there was anything special in her letter that she'd like to share with the nation, but she said no, that it was just an ordinary old clothing order from a shop that had long ago gone out of business. But that wasn't the truth. I know this because I was there when the letter arrived. I saw her reaction to that lost letter, and it was anything but ordinary. Thank you. Thank you very much.
And I hope you'll read this book. It's a very good one. Now, I understand you might have questions. Is that right? Because I would be more than happy to answer whatever I can. I'm just turning this one on. All right. I'll hand it to Brian, see if he's got a first one. All right, Mr. Ralph, are you going to gallop? Yes. Anyone have a question? Okay, hold on. Where are you? Madeline, uh, yes. right now on my Victor Stream, I have The Course in Miracles, and I have the Ferranti book, and uh, every narrator reads an amazing variety of books, but I think you take the cake for, for the variety of books you've read, and they're all wonderful. Thank you so uh, they're much. They're wonderfully read, not wonderful books, no, necessarily. No, not all of them are. But, but I do have you. a question about the one you just read, yes. which is clearly from the point of view of an English person. Yes. How do you determine, and when do you determine, whether to use a bit of an English accent, say, in a book like that? Um, we usually use it right from the start. I didn't use it today because we have been, um, it has been recommended to us that we don't use accents. Um, yes, and it's, it's kind of difficult to get away from. I know that some of the more recent books I have been Americanizing them more rather than using the accent um, that would be apparent, like this British accent. If I was? What did you say? Yes, that, that can be part of the reason. And also, I, I understood when I was told this um, probably six, eight months ago, maybe even more, um, that if the book is not written with the accent in it, for example, French or whatever it is, if the words are not actually written phonically for you to be able to follow what the accent is, um, people were making up accents that just didn't seem to be called for. So I think that's part of the reason why they wanted to stop it. Um, <clears throat> I love your, uh, your uh, reading. Uh, I'm just thinking of Eve Duncan. Are you the one that reads the Eve Duncan series? That is so surprising you brought that up because I had put some of that in my speech. I, I got another question. Yes, yeah. yes. I read, um, I didn't read them all, mm -hmm. but I read a lot of them, a lot of the Eve Duncan series. And I was r finishing up the last three, but the third one didn't come to me. Uh -huh. It went to another narrator. So here I am building up what forever, like 10, 15 years, and I'm getting to the final part where we discover what happens to Eve Duncan's daughter and all, all the, the ties are going to be, or all the strings are going to be tied together. And I didn't read it. Um. And I was just disappointed beyond belief. Well, I'm glad I got to that point because my curiosity was getting the best of me. But, um, and you had mentioned uh, earlier you were in another world. What character did you play in that show? I was a nurse. Um, my name was Janet. I wasn't on a very long period of time. Okay. Okay. Um, I was offered another job in a, in a repertory theater in, in uh, Indiana, so I went on to do stage, which 
I really wanted to do. Plus, I got my uh, actor's equity card up there, so I left New York then. Yes? Oh, that's right. Wait. <laughs> Ralph has the microphone. Yes. Hi, Madeline. Hi. It's Judy Dixon from the National Library Service. I have three comments and a question. Um, thank you for being so kind to NLS this morning. Other narrators that have spoken before this group have taken the opportunity to bash NLS, and I do appreciate it. Oh, goodness. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, thank you. S um, as far as the accent, I, your answer is absolutely correct, and, it, and it's worse than that because I think some narrators don't do accents well. And a light accent is still tolerated, but it's yes. the heavy, um, overdone accents that are that are being discouraged. Yes, that's um, what I thought. We also. get a lot of complaints about um, narrators using accents. So I that's, see. That's the reason for that. You actually narrated a book that I wrote. Oh. Um, <laughs> la label it. Oh yes. Yeah. So, and you did a fabulous job. Thank so you. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you. And uh, even though I wrote the narrator's notes, <laughs> yes, <for> well, because <laughs> there was some braille in there, and how would you know how to read? I braille? wouldn't. No, right. you're right. But thank, thank you very much. Um, of course. So, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. It was when I was seven, this is Derek, by the way. Hi, Derek. Hi. That uh, it w I was seven when I was introduced to the NLS Talking Book Program, and a book that you narrated was the first book that I heard. Oh, no. Great. It I hope. was so <laughs> amazing to me that it, with it, it drew me into the world of the character. Oh, that's wonderful. At seven, of course, I didn't really comprehend the, this book contains up to four sides, and you know, the introductory, was, yeah. blah, <laughs> skip, fast, oh, there. And the book title, I don't know if you remember it or not, was M.E. and Morton. Not to be confused with me and Morton. M.E. and Morton. It was from 1987. If you remember that, you are am more amazing than you already are, by the way. I don't. I, I, have to, I mean, I could probably lie, but I'm not going to. The, the synopsis, basically, in brief, was um, it was from the perspective of this very snobby girl. And she was talking about, basically, how her brother was stupid and how she was brilliant. Of course. Except she wasn't so brilliant because he managed to get a lot of what he wanted. So he thought, or she thought in her brilliance that she would try to make him look even more stupid and copy <laughs> some of his mannerisms to get what she wanted. Ah. Including starting the chant, uh, you know, um, Morton without the T and getting everyone to realize, oh, that's oh, yes. moron. The Vaguely. reason. The reason it brought me into the book was, of course, it was from her perspective looking back. Mm -hmm. So it started with back in grade three uh -huh. and, of course, went from there. Well, I thought you were that girl. Oh. Looking back, <laughs> talking about that time. When was this? 87? Maybe 87. I, was. <laughs> I I heard it in 91 because I was seven then. Ah. But... Uh, it was recorded in 87. I learned all of this technical stuff later because like every ethical person uh, did, probably at that time, I had a dual cassette deck and I copied the thing off. Oh, yes, ethical person. Yeah, you know, because yeah. why not, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nobody ever has done that before, right? No, Nobody no, no, no. You're the first and it's, it's good it. of you to confess. Uh. There's a statue of limitations, I think. Statute. <laughs> 
of limitations. Um, yeah, but what I was what I was going to ask you, um, though, yes. was <laughs> what is your favorite genre of book? Do you like that kind of book? Do you like more action adventure kinds of things? What what draws you into the world that the author? I creates? really I really like children's books. And I really like science fiction. Um, I, may, I may have said something about the, um, the annual best, best of science fiction uh, editions because they were very long, but I do like to read science fiction. But I can be drawn into any kind of a book. I can also be um, repelled by any kind of a book, but then again, I can't do that. Because some people like, you know, we all have different, obviously, we all have different tastes, so. But those are the kinds of books. I thought you might say Martin Bridge, because I read uh, a lot of those. Yes? Hi, Madeline. This is Hi. Michael Talley from Alabama. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for being here today. You do an incredible job. Thank you. Uh, just for fun, I just thought it might be kind of neat if you could tell us one of the, some like one or two craziest stories while you were that happened to you while you were recording uh, a book or something, just something crazy that may have happened to you. Something crazy? Yeah. Every day is crazy. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the horseshoe story. Even though that wasn't a crazy thing, I, we couldn't stop laughing because I don't have any idea. It was like somebody was pounding on my head, going, "Say horseshoes, say horseshoes. It's snowshoes, but say horseshoes." I don't know why. But, and it's that kind of thing that has happened. I, um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever, oh, yes, wait. Well, this isn't a crazy story for me, except that I was recording, and I was probably reading something very intense. And all of a sudden, I heard a loud crash. And I guess the book had become too exciting for my monitor because she had fallen out of her chair. <laughs> She had fallen asleep, so I'm not sure <laughs> that that's really crazy, but, you know, that did happen. <laughs> it wasn't a fine moment, but it did happen. <laughs> Poor girl. <laughs> I have a question for you. Yes? When, uh, when you're reading, and on the rare occasions when you may make a mistake. I did a lot today, uh, yes. <laughs> <coughs> how does the monitor notify you? It's like, stop. Yeah, she'll stop. Well, I'll say the uh, archaic way, but she'll stop the tape. She'll stop the recording. Uh, And if I hear it, sometimes I can hear that I've made a mistake or I've read it wrong, or even I can hear some noises. Um, Well, I can stop the machine also. They've given us that power now. We didn't used to have it. Narrators weren't allowed to do much, just sit there and read. But now we can stop it, so that's what we do. Yes, uh, there are two ways. Y- usually, yes, I can hear that, but I also um, there are lights on the uh, on the buttons that I can push to stop it myself and restart it, and roll it back. See, those are all um, tape tape uh, languages, but that's what we use. Yeah, tape language. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Yeah, lingo. Any more questions? Yeah. All right, hold on. Okay. Um, Madeline, this is Kira from Salt Lake City. Hi, Kira. Um, I actually, I have two questions, if that's okay, mm-hmm. and a comment. I, as a as a um, patron of the NLS library, it drives me up the wall when they have a narrator who does 
all the books in the series except for the last one. Or yeah. all the books, and then for the ninth book, they do a different narrator, and then they do the same narrator they've had for the first eight and for the last, like, three. So my first question is, when you have a series that you're reading, um, like you were talking about the Eve, Eve, da- Duncan. Eve Duncan, Duncan yeah. series, and they don't give you the last book, I know you do a lot of reading, but do you ever have the... I'm, I'm going to go and read that book and find yes, out what happens. Yes, in fact, I did buy I did buy Iris Johansson's last book. Um, I, I don't know if it was Eve Found. I can't remember what the name of it was, but the very last one of the Eve series, I did go out and, and purchase it, and I haven't read it yet. <laughs> it's really hard for me to read um, personally. I mean, yeah. it's, it's yeah. because I find myself preparing oh, yeah. a book yeah. as opposed to just reading it for enjoyment. Or reading it, period. And then my other question actually goes back to um, your history. You were telling us about how you were in theater. I actually am a community theater. Um, I take part in community theater Fantastic. quite often. I was in um, The Little Mermaid last summer ah. as a sea turtle. Fun. Yeah, it was a <laughs> lot of fun. Um, but I, I, I just have a question about that. What? <laughs> nice one. I guess what it was your favorite, and oh, I can tell you stories about the costume people and how they would yell at us and you know, pick up your costumes, don't throw them on the floor. Yes, Those kinds well, of things. that's costume mistress jobs. <laughs> yes, yes. I had that um, once. <laughs> what was your favorite um, sh- play, musical, show that you ever performed in? My favorite musical was The Fantastics. Yeah, yeah I really yeah. loved that. And, I, and when I left Another World um, and I went up to the Enhanted, Enchanted Hills Playhouse in uh, Wawasee, Indiana, that was one of the shows that I did up there, and that was, that was a lot of fun to do. It's a great musical, great musical, did you just d- delightful. Did you, did you ever do Shakespeare? Did you enjoy Shakespeare? I, um, yeah, I did do a little bit of Shakespeare. I played Ariel. Um, and then, uh, as I was saying earlier today, um, I did those vignettes uh, um, for Shakespeare. I, I didn't do a whole lot, but yes, some uh, Tartuffe, some Moliere. Yep. Okay, hold on. Um, In the first row, I think, over there at the far end. Okay. And then, yes. Okay. Hi, Madeline. This Hi. is Josette Kernahan from Vancouver, B.C., and I've been reading books that you've narrated forever it seems on of course so many of them you can't remember all the titles but no. um, i found you did very well with, with naughty people and villains oh thank you <laughs> that sort of thing in <laughs> romances um and the other two uh things i wanted to ask or um i know you've gone to digital recording now how do, do you go back on the tapes it used to do reel to reel but how do you do that now, and uh, I'll let you answer that first. And I had one more about your leisure reading. What are you, what are your favorite books uh, for just le- leisure reading yourself? Yeah. Um, do you mean as far as time is concerned? What we read for we read digitally, but we stop at uh, ninety minutes. No, but I mean the um, how do you go back on those? Because uh, I I used to do recording myself. Ah, uh, uh, we can. I used I used to do some of that. I see for school books. Right, we we can then. roll back when we do corrections. We can roll back and just that part of the sentence is I, gone. I guess and then what we I'm saying again. is, I used to do it on old reel to reel tapes, and I wonder how it was done now. Well, in yeah. reel to reel, didn't we splice it? Yes. Yes, as I recall, That's that was really difficult to do corrections. I, I never spliced it. You just went back on the. 
tape and, and you erased. Right. Yeah. The very first time I recorded, I recorded on a giant piece of tape. And we would have to splice the corrections in. And then um, after that, we could roll back and, and do some correcting. Oh, that's right. My favorite, as I said, um, I, ha I get some of my, my uh, leisure, leisure reading, from, um, um, just from reading at the, at the printing house. Um, it, it is difficult for me to, to focus on a book and not think about the fact that I have to figure out how to say words and how to do things like that. So, Two more rows. Hi, Madeline. Hi. My name is Judy Jackson, and I um, think I say this to every um, narrator that we have, and it is so true that for to for people for us narrators like yourself are like movie stars to people who are sighted because we feel like we get to know you the more and more books that we read by you, and you may have shared what I'm going to ask you. Um, Earlier in the session, unfortunately, I had to be out for a training. Um, how did you get involved in narrating for the printing house? And if you shared that already, then I, I'll let it go so people don't have to rehear it. I just happened to miss it. No, I, um, well, I, I, I got involved in theater, and I did a lot of theater. And, and um, actually, what I didn't say this morning was that my first husband, who was in uh, television, he recorded for, for the American Printing House for the Blind. He did magazines. Um, he didn't actually last very long because he didn't have the patience. Um, and then that's why I got rid of him anyway. But, you know, <laughs> that's how it works. But, no, he was not. He was not an awful person. It's just, um, but that's how I had heard about it. And, you know, they actually frowned on women. They weren't that um, happy to have women narrators back in the um, back in the 80s, back in the late 70s. They had them, of course, and they were they were good and they were used. But um, it was hard. Yeah, it was hard. So um, when I decided that I I just couldn't I couldn't take the rejection anymore when I wasn't doing theater anymore, and it seemed like as I said this morning, I was looking for more work than I was finding. Um, I went back to the talking book, pro or I went to the talking book program, and I um, I auditioned, and then I got the job. I have a, I have another question: Is the chair you sit in comfortable or uncomfortable? <laughs> the chair I sit in is comfortable, actually. Um, some of them have been not so comfortable. <laughs> They've tried to go through uh, or go for those what are they ergonomically sound chairs? Okay. Some are good, some are not. Ergonomically isn't for everyone. <laughs> Anybody else? I would like to ask. Hi, Madeline. You Hello. May Hi. You may have answered this, but what is the longest time you have spent reading a book in one sitting, and have you ever finished recording a book in one sitting? Uh, unless it was a ch children's book, no. Um, the longest, what we work in are, are uh, sessions of two hours plus a little bit. So the longest that I, actually the longest I've read is six hours, but there's always breaks in between, and that's certainly not steady reading. As you heard me this morning, um, when I stumble the way I stumbled, we of course have to stop and go back and smooth it out a bit. 
But that's, um, you're welcome. So here's my question. Yes. Uh, NLS is included in the collection in order to expand the number of books we have access to and to put emphasis on books that might not go commercial, that is commercial reading. Have you read anything for places like uh, Audible? Audible. And et cetera, et cetera? Um, uh, are you allowed to do that kind of thing when you're under contract with APH? And also, is it pronounced lowering or lowering? <laughs> it depends on what's what it, the lowering or the clouds. When they're coming in, they're lowering. Lowering, correct? Mm, was that a was that a trick question? No, no, it's, <laughs> it's a pet peeve. Are we on Jeopardy? <laughs> <laughs> um, l- let me see. You asked me. Recording oh, for other companies. Right out. Oh, it's not a problem. No, there is no um, conflict at all. And I have read, I read, we're all grown-ups here, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I read some softcore pornography. One small part of a book. I didn't read the whole book. There were lots of other people sharing this responsibility with me, so... And then I read some, um, I read a couple of books which are on, are available on audible.com that are more textbooky. Um, they were like theses from a um, uh, different professor. So, hi, Madeline. I'm hi. Paul Edwards, and Paul. I'm going to return to the issue of, um, of science fiction for a minute. Um, there, there are a number of series that you've done, and, and, and I guess I wondered if among the science fiction you've read you had any particular sort or particular um, series or whatever that you, that you found most interesting and why. Um, let's see. I just, finished a ser- uh, I just finished a book called Sisters of Tomorrow. Um, it was about science fiction that was written in the... F- 50s, 60s, maybe a little, a little, and it was written by women. Um, it, it was interesting the approach they took. I don't know that all the stories were interesting, but that was interesting that they that they uh, compiled a bunch of um, uh, women authors um, who were not uh, who were also frowned upon as being authors of science fiction. Um, I, I think I, I did like uh, what is this Gardner Dozois. His um, his collections were very interesting, and I would have to rack my brain because there was somebody else that I really enjoyed reading. Um, she compiled a like the Black Cat. Mm, I can't remember, um, but none nothing in particular comes back to me. It, maybe the Trilliums, yep. um, Julian May, and and uh, thank you, Bradley Milton's. Uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley, yeah. I have a, um, I did look through my, um, the list of books that I've read, <laughs> just so that I could get an idea of what I had read, because <laughs> it isn't all there in my little pea brain, but but um, I do remember reading those, Golden Trillium and uh, Black Trillium. And I do. Hello. Um, is it my turn? Okay, I'm Doug Stipp. I'm from Minot, North Dakota. Hi, uh, I have a job back home where where uh, I'm a radio announcer, and uh, sometimes I wind up reading things on on air, and sometimes they haven't been proofed. And and mm. now, <laughs> and, and I'm trying to proofread stuff in my head, and I can sometimes. Has there ever been an instance 
where you've you've misread something and it is just or or something comes out that is just so funny that you completely lose you lose your composure and have to and have to stop and take a breath or a drink of water or something. I'm I'm talking on I'm talking bloopers, outtakes. That kind oh, of thing. absolutely. Of we have lots of bloopers. Yeah, like this morning I said. Um, oh well, I can't tell you that one again. Um, the the wanton woman, wanton woman, that sort of thing. The mispronunciation that happens. The mizzled. Now I've done things like that. I haven't done mizzled. I did uh, berry boned once which I think uh, some people might remember. Um, and that was when I was reading a bodice ripper, and she was wearing a berry-boned gown. And, um, of course, she stopped me and said, no, that's beribboned. So, yes, we do crack up. You know, there are times. We, um, we also find ourselves sometimes um, editing books, and uh, not editing, but... Um, Yes, editing. So we'll put the word, yes, correcting. We'll put the word typo on the page so that when it goes to NLS, they'll know that um, we made a change because it was a necessity to the story. Um, horseshoes wasn't a necessity of the story and would have hurt. But, um, but we have done that. We have, a lot of times there is no proofreading for sometimes when those books come out and they're, they're published. You wonder where the copy, the copy editor was. Um, a lot of characters' names can get uh, twisted around, and so we, we tend to um, do change it so that, you know, it's not confusing. It's not confusing at all. Yeah, I did. Hi, Madeline. Hi. Um, I'm Desi Nola from Phoenix. Um, I think to get back to what Josette was talking about, I, I think I understand what she was trying to get at, um, maybe. I'm not very technically inclined myself, so bear with me here, but... When you're recording, when we get the books, they are now in a digitized format. But when you're actually recording, are you still actually recording on tape? Oh, no, no. Oh, no. I see okay. what. Oh, yeah. no. So I'm recording into the ether. Okay, it goes onto the internet. It's just, I mean, not the internet, but you know, it's going on the <laughs> wow, computer. Oh, that's great. It just goes out to everyone. Yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's out there. <laughs> Beware what you say. Um, okay, um, this is Carol in Nashville, Hi. and um, I was a Braille proofreader for a while, mm. and I know one of the things that happened to us, and I suppose it might have happened to you guys, too, whenever we'd be reading cookbooks, I mean, everybody would be heading to the vending machines, the fast food places, oh, absolutely. And, and whatever, so we were proofing a cookbook one time, and we never could uh, get the punk, the publisher to, to clarify what this was, but it said that you were supposed to cook this thing in the microwave for four hours. And oh my gosh! Oh no no no! <laughs> yes, I think that and it was went a, through. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Oh yeah. We usually when like when I recorded a piece of cake, we would make a different cake every week, and we just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But boy, were they good. Hmm. Somebody else. Yeah. Hi, Lisa Cushman from California. Hi, um, Lisa. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, um, got a couple of questions. Um, one, is this um, something that a blind person could do, you know, using a, a digitized book? Nope. Okay. Oh, you mean recording? Yeah. Uh, someone else has asked me that before, and I don't think so. Uh, someone okay. came in to audition. I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. But it was in Louisville. I think so. 
Yes, and um, there's just you can't. It's there's a speed um, or there's a timing limit into how how you can read and how quickly you have to get the work done. So, Unf not not the fact that you're reading fast, but but that you can. Um, uh, well, it is reading fast. Yes, there's a timing thing. And it could that too. It could definitely be that too. Yeah. And anyone else? Well, uh, okay. Kelly? I just have a question. I'm sure emotionally it's got to be hard. You share. You have shared some of that. Are there some books that make you you literally cr literally cry? When yes, you're actually, them? portraits. Nine one eleven did. Um, and it wasn't, obviously, it wasn't the story. It wasn't even, um, yes, it did. I'm reading, just reading their names. It still does. <laughs> it's just something, it's there, so. Um, but yes, there are other stories that have made me cry, yes. No. <laughs> no, no, I try to be strong. No, I turn the tape off. And yeah, we can't. No, well, we, I don't think we ever were able. I mean, certainly uh, we tried to um, inject emotion, but. I have another question for you. If, if you were allowed well, to, would yeah. you, if you were allowed to, would you sing when it's required in a book? Do blue? you know what? You were not allowed to do that, but the very first, one of the first years I was there, we, one, of the, one of the pages in the book had a song. I don't recall what it was, but they had a song, and I sang it because at the time they said, if you've got this song, you have to sing it. So I sang the notes, and we got, re uh, well, we got it sent back. It wasn't rejected, but we got it sent back. Um, Tom Bickford sent it back because he said, one of the notes I hit was not the correct note. Wow. And he was absolutely right. I was off. I wasn't flat or sharp. I just hit the wrong note. Wow. So we corrected that. But no, we don't, we don't sing anymore. We don't, um, right. we don't do that. Hi, this is um, Alice Turner. Hi. One of the things that I've always wondered about with um, female narrators is that you you all uh, do such a good job with the male voices. Oh, good to so hear. So, how? What do you like do in your you know as far as your grimace or grimace? Uh, you know <laughs> what what do you do to make that male voice sound so convincing? Um, what I generally do is drop the timbre of my voice or the. Um, the level, sometimes I slow it down. Some, um, my men tend to speak low <laughs> as opposed to high unless, you know, there's a reason. But that's generally what I do. <laughs> um, sometimes the way the conversation is written lends itself to, it seems as if it was written with a male voice. Sometimes the author does not do that. They just, you know, they just write. They just write their book, and it doesn't have the same nuances. This is a man talking. This is a female dialogue, or this is the yeah. This is what they would say in conversation. Um, some some authors, and that's why they're easy to read, is because they write the conversation and it sounds conversational, and then some just write words down and. It's it's harder to make that sound as if someone is actually talking to someone else. 
Yes, Madeline, my name is Bob Bradley. Hi, Bob. Uh, I would like to know, have you ever accidentally done spoonerisms? Spoonerisms? You mean... Um, like the uh, headless horse... The the headless yeah, the horse headless or the horseless headman? The horseless headman. I yeah. have, and unfortunately I haven't written them down, so that means I don't want to remember what I did. <laughs> you know, there was, a, there, there was not too long ago where I did that a lot. I just kept um, transposing the, uh, the letters, and that's all I did, and, you know, we'd stop. Of course, that was another one where we laughed a lot. <laughs> Didn't get a lot of time on tape, but we laughed a lot. Now that's not what I Hi. Do you read any nonfiction? I, I recognize your voice, but I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I, yes, I do. I can't actually, you know, I haven't written down what the nonfiction books are. The science fiction, of course. Well, no, they're not nonfiction, are they? Um, I can't give you any titles. But yes, I have read. I, I used to read quite a bit of medicine. I don't know why. But I used to read quite a bit of medical book, quite quite a few medical books. Now we're getting a lot of romances. Uh, you don't have a choice. I don't have a choice in what I read, but also we don't have a choice so much with what is sent to us. And um, lately, we've been getting quite a few romances, and then quite a few gory, gruesome, horrible. <laughs> Just they're great books. <laughs> we're glad to get them, but boy, sometimes those stories are rough. Okay, um, this is Teresa from Gonzales, Louisiana. Uh-huh. And um, you talked earlier, just a few minutes ago, about having to stop your machine because you were brought to tears. Have you ever had to, even though the two-hour period was not up, had to just stop the machine, leave the place for a while, take a walk or a drive, you know, and get yourself back together? Um, no. No, I don't think I ever have had to do that. Um, I think sometimes we have gotten up, but just walk, no, no. Hi, Madeline, this Hi. is Denise. And I'm wondering, you mentioned reading children's books, and I was wondering if there are special ways to prepare for children's books, any, any um, preparation you have to do in advance. You have to do a lot of smiling. <laughs> you have to feel good. <laughs> Most of the children's books I've read have been just good fun. Um, the Martin Bridge series, The Babysitter's Club, uh, which I haven't read lately. I think I've passed that, but those were always fun. Um, but there's nothing special to do other than as I read the book, I have to see where, you know, what these little characters are going to do, who they are, and, and their little voices, what they are. I don't say that I do voices, but you have to give a little different inflection with each character, um, which I try to do. Okay. Anybody else? Hi, this is Donna Siren from St. Louis. Do you find that when you're reading something that gets extremely exciting that it tends to really come through in your voice? Yes, and she stops me a lot because what happens is my levels go up and then it's all that controlling the levels, keeping them at a certain point and not allowing them to go up higher. So I have to back off the microphone. This microphone is great because I can be right on it. And you can hear me just fine. 
somebody in the back? And so far, I don't think I've put your ears out yet, but. But yes, I have gotten too excited. Have you um, ever ended up reading parts of a series and then getting some very unwelcome spoilers? You know what's really unwelcome are the book jackets. I mean, that tells you the whole story, so there's no real surprise when you get to the parts that you think should be the twists in the book. And that surprises, that surprises me that the um, book jackets are as explicit as they are or as um, complete as they are. Because there are a lot of times there's, there's a great twist coming and you know it's coming and then that's the problem. You know it's coming. So it's not so much a twist. I think that's why um, the Peter Swanson book, um, Her Every Fear, was good because there were some twists that you just didn't know were coming. Again, it's a gruesome, gory book. It's a murder book. So... Um, um, I don't know that I heartily recommend it, but it, it was at least interesting in that respect. All right. Anybody else? And I'm better acquainted with the more recent okay. ones I've read, as you can tell. The, oh, The Distant Hours by Kate Morton. It's um, a big book. Madeline, my yes? name is Deborah. Hi. And um, the first series you ever read that I... I mean, the first series you read that I ever listened to was um, by Eugenia Price, and I was like, this lady reads well. (laughs) Oh, thank you. She writes beautifully. Doesn't she, though? Oh, my gosh, yes. I saw her her books. I noticed her books when I was looking through that list, and I had forgotten all about them. Yes. She was a wonderful writer. But my question is, how do you get through the books? You see this book, and you go... Oh, no, not another one of those. <laughs> How do you get to those? Uh, you just remember that someone out there wants to hear it, and you think of it as a new book. It's sometimes difficult, yes, yes. Okay, this question might, the answer to which might fit in sort of the elusive obvious category, but when you're reading a book, especially a long book, uh, how do you suppress the noise of turning the pages? Um, a lot of times, um, somehow I can do that sometimes. I can't always do it. But but most of the time what I'll do is I'll write on either the page I'm looking at at the time or the one that I'm turning to. I'll write the rest of the sentence on either page. So I'll just stop and then turn the page and then turn the machine back on and start reading. Um, Uh, you may have hi. You may hi. have already covered this. Uh, Nigel Reichardt's, by the way, Florida Council of the Blind. But I just walked in. What role did you play on Another World? Oh, I was Janet. I was a nurse, and again, I wasn't on very long. I was on long enough to get a taste of it, and somebody what, what, saw me. But what year was that? I'm trying. To uh, that's it. It was like 19. No, it was. Um, well, oh gosh, series, it was a long, long time ago. It was 19. Gosh, 70. Okay. All right. Thank it you. It was a long time ago. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was uh, it was a hot property then. I don't think it had split yet into two. Didn't it split into two? Yeah. 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 I acknowledge this is the second question from oh. Judy Wilkinson. I know. Did um you talked about preparing the book. Now, we've heard other narrators basically say we get handed the book, we start reading because we only get paid by the finished product we can push out the door so i'm curious to know about how much i mean does it wind up being like 
two cents an hour by the time you've kind of prepared oh, the book? Oh, no, no, no. Well, we don't cents? count the preparation time. It's like learning your lines. That doesn't count. <laughs> so, so it is really kind of you get paid by the push, the product you push out the door? We get paid by the recorded minute. Yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a. I like my way of saying it better. <laughs> we try not to push the the work out the door, but the um, uh, we have time. We get the books in advance. At least I do. And there was a time uh, uh, years ago when you might get a book and you might have to read it that day or at least start it that day. But it wasn't. Um, it was just because you ran. You didn't have any more. You finished your book and you had time to keep reading, so you read a little bit more. Um, but I get all my all my books have come to me in time to prepare. Anybody else? One of the things um, that is um, interesting to me is the, is the number of narrators who end up, in addition to reading books, being required to read periodicals. And yes. my question is, how much of a how much of a, of, a, of a difficulty does having to stop in the middle of a book and rush off and read periodicals create in terms of interrupting concentration and that sort of thing? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, we're, there was a time when APH was doing a lot of periodicals, um, but we wouldn't. Uh, let's see. They would already know ahead of time that we were going to get them, so the next day you would know your session would start. At least that's how it went with us. You'd know your session was going to be period the periodical, whatever it was, if it was QST or if it was cricket or if it was... Um, I guess we still read news... Oh, no, I don't guess because I do read it. Um, Newsweek. And um, Reader's Digest, we still record those, but um, we aren't recording the other publications. It ca can be a problem. It, it Sometimes I have been um, asked to read something else while I'm in the middle of a book, and you are in a different frame of mind when you're reading something that needs to be read quickly, like a periodical. Um, and they're difficult to read, too, because you aren't preparing that. So if you're reading something about something that went on in Russia... Uh, which you do now, um, it's hard because the names are, are not quite as, uh, you're not that familiar with them, or I'm not that familiar with all those names. That's just an example. I think we've got it. Well, thank you very much. It was I've a pleasure one last to be question. Whoa, uh, hold, hold, I didn't hold, know hold, that. Hold, hold, uh, the moderator always gets to have the last question. Not the last word, but the last question anyway. Um, the reading of poetry. Yes. Now, unlike meant much of writing, where they expected you to read it silently, poetry, part of its joy is the reading of it aloud. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? Do you, yeah, it's almost like you have to, the punctuation is insufficient to really get the feel of a poem. It is, and when I was taught to read poetry, or when I was reading poetry, before I started recording, um, we would just kind of read. We would read the thought as it went. We would read the way it went, and it didn't always rhyme the way it was written because the thought kept going. Um, they didn't like the way I read poetry, quite honestly. Um, so I, I tended not to... We, I haven't read poetry for a very long time. Maybe within a book I've read something. Um, but I haven't read a lot of it lately. Um, 
they gave it to Roy, Roy Avers. Do you remember Roy Avers? Yes. And he was a wonderful reader, and he did poetry magnificently. So they tended to match the narrator to the, the kinds of materials that they can read um, better, which, you know. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, so much for that. Yes, we, we Ralph, you do an incredible job. <clears throat> so, what does the program say is next? Break. So, we're going to take a break, and we are going to be back when, Paul? At 2.45, 2.45, okay? 2.45. What is that, 2.45? We are going to be talking about various, um, various alternative ways of getting to reading material. And then after that, um, after that, we're going to be talking about uh, one book, one ACB, and, and we're going to be talking about a book about the, s the Second World War, if you remember. Oh. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All the things we cannot see. Yep, so that's what we're going to be doing. Incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to become a member of either BRL or Lua, we'd ask you to see our mic runner, Ralph. He'd love to take information about you and get you onto the rolls. He said he'd be right back, so he may not be here at this moment. I think he may have had to make a visit. So he should be back in just a moment. Do not ask, what is it? <laughs> well, that, that's, a, that's an old T.S. Eliot quote. Let us go then, you and I, where the patient is laid out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go and make our visit. Do not ask, what is it? I, in, in coffee spoons, exactly. I measure up my life in coffee spoons. One of the greater lines. Comes from a poem called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Place, um, they take place usually in North Carolina. Yep. Yep. Um, I don't 
what are some of the titles on Ties, Prince of Ties? obviously gets it, whereas a lot of people who read don't. smaller than the, the very old one, which is like 20 cells. I guess I would look as well for, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, I, I would look at the Focus 14 um, because the new 
design of it is is a lot sturdier than the older one. Um, and, and also because particularly now, um, it's as inexpensive as it is and can do virtually everything that the others can. Um, yep. Well, thank you for being here for this part. We love you.
Judy Dixon, are you still here? Judy Dixon. Since there were a, a number of other things that happened, we'll probably give folks another two to three minutes, but then we're going to get started. So we're going to go ahead and get started, so if people could settle, settle in quietly. And I'm going to be moderating 
I guess, the, the, the two elements of this section. Um, but I'm not going to by, be by any means uh, be doing these things alone. Um, has Judy Dixon happened to return? No. I had a feeling that would happen. We had intended to kidnap her and make her a part of this presentation. Um, and we'll, we'll tell you why before the session is over. Um, however, um, what, what we want to do in this section is talk a little bit about something that we have discussed. Well, in fact, let me give you a kind of a preview. In, in the first part, we're, we're going to be talking about um, other ways of getting access to books on the Internet that people might not know about. Um, and as it happens, somebody stole our thunder, and that person was Judy Dixon. Um, and and uh, w if we had, if we had, if we had been lucky, uh, we would have kidnapped her and make her and made her do most of this session. <laughs> but we didn't, and we haven't, and so she won't. Um, <laughs> well, we all should, and we'll tell you about that in a while. It, but. Um, and then in the, in the second section, um, we're, we're going to be do, talking about uh, a book uh, written by Anthony Doerr. Can anybody guess what it might be? All the light we cannot see, I think. Yep. Now, so how many people in this room have read that book? Well, so I think what we're going to do is change. I, I, I sent out a message that apparently went into to La La Land about five weeks ago. Well, that was the movie business. <laughs> to, our, um, to our mailing list, which, which I think is actually getting more widely used now. Thank you, Brian, for putting that together. Um, and <coughs> the, what the message said is that we we're going to be just talking about this book, and it went a little bit over the plot. But I think what we'll do instead, um, because it seems fairer, is, is talk about something more general rather than one book, one ACB. So unless, unless somebody has a better idea, what I think we'll end up during that, during that section is talk, talk about the portrayal of uh, blindness and blind characters in literature, which sounds like a fun thing to do. All right. So... <laughs> Nevertheless, we may, we may be finished by about 3 o'clock. No, <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm taking the mic away from this guy. <laughs> come on, come on, come on, come on. So, those of you who are members of Lua and those of you who are not, you may have been hearing that we have been doing a series on conference calls that is Library Without Walls. So I propose that when we get to that point of the segment, as a whole scenario, that we launch into a library without walls session. Now, I, I have to admit, when somebody says, we're going to look into the deeper meaning of, then that's when, yeah, 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 there we go. So I tend to fall asleep when that happens. What did you enjoy reading? Now, that's a, that, that grabs me a little bitter. A better, but the first segment is all going to be about sources for books. Uh, as I said to Karen Kinninger just the other day, you know, we don't want access to NLS books. We want access to what? 
all books, all books. Our goal is not to be use NLS as our only library. Any more than sighted people use only one means of accessing the printed word, right? So Paul and I wanted to discuss some of the things that we've come across over the years that make our reading not exclusively NLS reading. I've got my iPhone open here. I've got a folder on it called Book Readers. And in there, of course, I have Audible. Most people in this room probably have used Audible. Well, actually, I'd be interested. How many people use Audible now? Not very many. Half a dozen. Uh, well, maybe. maybe. We'd be lucky if that... So, so all people who use Audible, clap your hands. Yeah, about half a dozen. You're right. Half a dozen or so. Sorry? Well, we, will, we, we absolutely will be talking about that. Absolutely. So, Audible is one. And, you prob- and a lot of that is driven by... Gee, I'm just impatient to wait for it to come through the NLS program. Because, of course, Audible is buy it to use it. Yeah. It's not a loan library, right? Well, and, and, it also, and it also can be that you, really don't like the, that you really don't like the NLS reader who reads a particular book. I, like, for me, I, I, reached, I reached a point where in, in, the, um, in the fifth volume of... Um, of uh, George R. R. Martin's saga, I just could not stand the reader. That's a saga, not a saga. I'm going to go over here to this microphone so I don't have to compete with Paul for the for the mic because I want to let him. Let it's him a speak it's a, it's a saga, but it's okay. Be, All right, so so again, audible, valuable, not cheap. Not if you're used to borrowing books instead of buying them. Uh, but that's an important service, though. And I do, have used it. I actually enjoy, when doing Audible stuff, there are some things that simply are more like they were designed like a lecture, right? And it's great to hear it by the person who wrote it. It gives it some extra meaning to me when that can happen. And, of course, I use Learning Ally from time to time, though I still love the way they call it, Learning Ally, uh, on my iPhone. And that's spelled A space L-I-E. And, and for me, because I have such fond memories of using them throughout my college days, and when I first started learning to co- use computers, and the volunteer narrator was telling me all about the DOS operating system, and ASC2, otherwise known as ASCII. So, so you learn to listen creatively with, with those. And uh, it's better now, but it's still volunteer reader, not professional reader. Yes. You all, you, again, you have to be a creative In listener. Fact, almost inevitably are. I read Kindle books. Again, it's a buy situation for the most part, but I read Kindle books because I can read it on my iPhone with a Kindle app, on my Fire tablet with a Kindle app, and I actually own two previous versions of the Kindle itself, the one that used synthetic speech to read, but it would only read one out of about 10 or so books that you could get, and you didn't know whether it was going to be readable or not. Um, 
it took me forever to get a refund on the um, biography of Nelson Mandela, which somehow was blocked. But anyway, so Kindle, you were saying something, Judy? Sure. Without a question. So Judy's question, just, uh, I, I don't know if anybody's recording this. So Judy's question was, can one actually read Kindle books directly on a Fire tablet? Absolutely you can. Yes, and in fact, once you buy them, they're listed as your possession. And you can go to any device that has a Kindle app on it, including a Kindle or a Fire or in, any of these devices, and it'll show up on your bookcase or whatever they want to call it, right, bookshelf, and then you can either, absolutely, absolutely. You own it to use it in your name on any of your devices. And after a while, you'll want to get them off of there because they take up a lot of memory. Now, Brian, But I that doesn't mean that you've thrown them away. They're still in the cloud right. in your name. Nothing that is says anything other than eight inch or better. Well, uh, what I would do is I would probably get the most expensive eight inch, um, and and that that's going to cost you all of probably under seventy nine dollars, I would guess. Yep. Um, so it's not it's not going to be a huge expense, but there's no reason to buy anything bigger if, as 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 a totally blind person. Right. So there's no reason to get the bigger screen. You right. get the best sound you're going to get, you can get on an 8-inch. Yeah, and, and, best sound and you're get. go ahead and splurge for the one that has stereo and Dolby. There you go. Th those, that's it. 8-inch stereo Dolby uh, and everything else and as much memory as you can get. Because these are not things you add memory to. If they're a tablet, the memory is there. Um, and again, if you're comfortable, see, I read a book. I'm talking about listening to an audio book. And once I'm done reading it, I delete it. I move on with my life. I don't collect it uh, on a dusty shelf. But unlike doing that with NLS, I'm just one tap away from having it again. Right? It's in my account because it, it's in the cloud. Exactly. Now, Brian, Nook. just before you just before you go there, well, it actually this question actually applies both to Kindle and Nook. And I'm, and I'm going to ask you a preference question because I think it's important. Um, when when you read Kindle and Nook books, um, do you, do you tend to change the voice, or do you, do you just just stick with the, the with the voice that you've got? The lazy man says, "What is being read in with the least amount of effort on my part is what I'm going to do it." And again, part of that is because I grew up when my first synthesizer sounded like a drowning Russian. And somehow or other, I got through life with that anyway. It was the best of its kind at the time. Except he was a Ukrainian. <laughs> Wrong accent. Yes. You can.
<laughs> That's a very good question. It's an absolutely good question. Again, because of the field I'm in. I have to do it. But would I recommend it for somebody else? I will tell you that if you can, if the things you want to do can be done on your iPhone, I don't see an advantage to doing it on another platform, especially a tablet. The fact of the matter is, bigger is not better for a speech user. Not for a speech user. Absolutely. So, again, this is kind of a quasi you know, Brian opinion. I always like to be careful when I'm saying Brian opinion. In Brian's personal life and opinion, <laughs> Brian thinks that there's nothing ever going to be easier than an NLS book. Okay? So I can't gauge it by that. So when I go to reading e-text type books, um, not audible, but e-text type books, then I instantly assume that while I might want to look at something with a bit more, what would Peter call it, Corn call it, a greater granularity, right? Right, granularity, that's one of those techie words, right? A greater granularity, I need to spell something out or something like that. If, if you want, instead of saying read, continuous reads, two fingers stroke up on an iPhone, right? right? If you wanted something that other than that, you wanted to stop it on that word you just heard and flick a few times to the left till you get to the word you're interested in, then use your rotor to change the character and then flick forward to go through it. Yes, you can spell it, but that's a lot more effort than a casual read would do. So do I spell books, spell words in the middle of, of reading a good novel? Never. Never. I wouldn't do it. But knowing that if I'm looking at a technical book where there's a URL being spoken aloud, there's no way I'm going to catch that auditorily. So I want to have granularity there, and I'll pay the price for, for more effort to get at it when that happens. One of the things that I heard from Peter this morning in the general session that I think is true, um, and that is the value of being able to do a continuous read that isn't read to the bottom of this screen, but flip the page and read on. And uh, that's how I read. Do you think about the, what page am I on in this novel? No. I don't think in that way at all. So um, I just assume continuous read be continuous read. Kindle is easier, I think, on a smaller screen because they divide things up less. Correct. Right? Things tend to be screen by screen rather than you'll find this on the left and this on the right and this up at the top and this down at the bottom.
But can you really fall asleep reading Braille? Can you? <laughs> I mean, I know she can fall asleep reading audio, but I, I didn't know she fell asleep reading Braille. That's bad. <laughs> yeah. See, that happens. That happens to me, but I didn't think it happened to you. But but you're right to raise the question because it's an it's an entirely different um, it's it, there's an entirely different set of values that operate. I gotcha. It's it's a means of getting back to where you were. I understand. It's kind of an anchor point. Whenever I turn on an audio book on my stream. I will bookmark before I begin playing, even if I set the timer, Correct. the sleep timer, because it's going to be easier to get back to that bookmark than any other means for me to uh, get started without being too far off the mark. And, and, to, and to take the point that, that you were making, Brian, and that others were making as well, if you compare reading a book with the stream with reading a book with, uh, with, with an iPhone, um, it's a heck of a lot easier to get to um, to get to the place where you can spell out a word if you want to, or spell out a. Um, it, it's 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 much more direct. It may not be it may not be a lot slower or faster, um, but it's but it's more reliable because it's my it's my opinion that iPhones have a mind of their own and can be cantankerous and. Um, well, whereas the stream is is buttons, and we know what those are. Well, one is building with bricks; the other is building with clay. Yes. So it's a little more free form, if you will. The, the fact of the matter is that we have access to an incredible number of things out there, but we, we have the burden of using an adaptive way to access them. Kindle was not written, the Kindle Reader was not written for a speech user. No. Or a Braille user. It was written for a sighted uh, vision reader, if you will. And so there's always going to be these extra hoops we have to jump through when we're adapting to something that was never intended to be used in that particular way. So, uh, I think it was Judy who was saying, is Nook also, is Nook, is Nook accessible, ladies and gentlemen? Well, in, in my opinion, barely, and, and sometimes not. I would say it is legally accessible. It is not particularly usable. Right? There's this big difference. Hey, if you can do it by whistling Dixie in Swahili while scratching behind your right ear with your left foot, then it can be done. Well, that, that's, that's true. From an advocacy point of view, equitable, you mean, is it as easy for me to use it as it is for somebody else? With Nook, the answer is absolutely not. So. Well, part of, part of my 
attitude about all of this, in all honesty, is the word fair is simply not my vocabulary. Right. Right? Um, and, and as a result of that, when I look at something, I said, is it worth the energy yeah. to do it? Whatever it is, in this case, we're talking about reading a particular book or title or whatever. Is it worth the energy to me? And quite honestly, that's what sets my, my criteria. The easiest way for me to access a book, if it's available in 12 different ways, is called NLS. Okay? The second easiest way for me to access it probably is... No, no, because part of the ease means how many hours did I have to work to get the money to buy that Audible book? That's part of my investment in it. I'm such a believer in borrowing and not owning books. I'd rather rent it even than own it, to be honest with you, because I'm going to read it once, and then what? And then what? Plus, my wife's a librarian. Do you think I want to go home and say, I think I'd like to have an account to buy books instead of borrowing them? All those books at NLS? No way. Wouldn't happen. So, Nook, it's an option. It's not the best option when it comes to accessing online books. I shouldn't say online. Downloadable books. It, can you do it? Yes. Would I recommend it as your first choice? No. No, Nook, no. It, Nook is much more like Kindle. Kindle. Yeah, it's, it's the, the Barnes, Barnes and Noble, Noble version, version of, of Amazon's Kindle. And you can get a Nook reader, that is a physical device. Those are not accessible. Or you can get a Nook app, and those can be those, used. those can be accessed, but not easily and not without difficulty. Correct. You would probably lose a court case if you were to argue That's that you couldn't access something that was only available from the Nook catalog because legally it's, quote, accessible. Anyway, so those are the very standard ones, right? We also have... Um, they're, they're probably a little cheaper than print books, but equivalent to Kindle. Yeah, I would say it's more expensive than a paperback, but less expensive than a hard copy. <coughs> hardback book. Um, and again, I, I would say uh, you could look at, the, the, you know, because these titles are frequently available in several different locales, and you could do that kind of shopping around oh, for and you them. really should. You, you really should. Because, because I would like to put in a word for Bookshare, Brian. Yes, that's where um, I was going. My second choice after NLS is Bookshare. And it's Bookshare for a number of reasons. It's my, it's my second choice because it's not human narrated. Because it's not human narrated. And I've listened to people read aloud all my life, and I find that the easiest, least effort for me. So, But I love Bookshare and keep up my membership for decades. So let let me make a, a couple of comments about Bookshare that, that relate directly to, to what Brian says. First, there are two kinds of files in Bookshare, um, and I use both. Um, I, I, I love to read a, a number of books in Braille and prefer to read them on a, on a Braille display or a note taker. I'm, I'm overjoyed to tell you 
um, as of last, last evening, I can tell you that Bookshare uh, books read like a breeze on the orbit. Um, they're absolutely superb. Um, there is no problem whatever if you download a BRF file. But uh, Bookshare, for a while for me, went way down in terms of uh, reading books uh, audibly because um, when they created their Read to Go app, um, I thought they did a pretty cruddy job in terms of choosing synthesizers and, um, and, in, and in terms of the interface. Um, and for a while, um, I got out of reading Bookshare books by audio. I, I am a huge lover of an app called VoiceStream. Um, and, and essentially, VoiceStream allows you to make a, a, a really wide range of choices in terms of the re synthesized voice you choose to use. Um, you get a chance to play samples before you buy, but it can it can still be an expensive hobby when you start when you start to get into uh, really wanting to, to to give extended test drives to voices, which means that you've got to buy them. Um, nevertheless, um, what it does, uh, you can actually operate. Bookshare directly from VoiceStream, and it has fundamentally altered the way that the, the way that I think Bookshare and I interact. And I'm much more likely now um, to read books as Daisy books as they're downloaded there um, in audio. And and the same thing is true to a degree um, with the new Victor Reader Stream. But for me, that's only if because I've taken the trouble um, to download a different voice set, the one that includes Sharon, because that makes a huge difference for me in terms of my ability for a long time to listen to, audi to, to, to um, synthetic audio on the stream. Sure. Um, you go to the Humanware site, you go to the support, um, you go to the Victor Reader stream, and then there will be a series, well, it comes up uh, US English or English, and if you start looking in the English, you'll see that one of the downloadable, um, one of the downloadable, I can't remember what they call them, um, upgrades, uh, and the files end in UPG, is going to be a file that will have Sharon's name in it. And you just download that and then put it in the root of your stream, turn your stream off and back on, and it should install. Is there any way you can do it directly to your stream? Um, it, after you've converted to it, it'll automatically happen when updates happen. But, but b for the first time, I don't know of any way. It may be something to ask HumanWare to do. No, it's a... <clears throat> as, as you know, HumanWare comes with, uh, under normal circumstances, with two voices, Heather and Ryan. This is on the Victor Reader stream. On the Victor Reader stream. Okay on the second generation Victor Reader stream. And you can and should, in my opinion, um, look for the one that says Sharon and Heather. Well, if you have voice stream, Sharon's there. <clears throat> um, if you don't have voice stream, you don't need to. Um, I, I think, in fact, I'm sure that HumanWare does have um, demos of the various voices so that you'll be able to hear them. Rob, go ahead. Just a reminder, 
Thank you. Thank you. Great. So we have these what, what I guess I call traditional sources for things. That would be Bookshare, Learning Ally, NLS. The more commonly known online sources, services such as Audible, um, Kindle Nook, Kindle Nook, those kind of things, and iBooks. Sure. I use iBooks also, but again, think of all the th all the things that would have to happen before I got to that point, and whether or not I'm likely to um, invest the time and energy uh, to do it. I really need to need that book, not just want it, but need it at yeah. a given time to jump that particular hurdle. Yeah, I don't know if Brian agrees. I would say that iBook is about on the on the level of Kindle in terms of accessibility. I absolutely would agree. It's not. It's certainly not going to be easier. You know. Yes, Gutenberg is a public, public domain collection of titles. So before something can go into the public domain, it has to be old, very well, old. No, yes. Not, yes and no. Okay. Tell me something that's not that's in the public domain that isn't old. Uh, there, there are a lot of authors who, for some reason, fail to renew their copyright when it should have been. Um, and in particular in science fiction, if people are interested in that, there, there is actually a lot of science fiction from the 50s, 60s, and 70s that's found its way onto Gutenberg now, um, even, though, even though 50 years haven't passed. Okay, so let me try saying this differently. 70s, <laughs> my friend... Almost is 50. <laughs> old. But, but not, okay. not to a guy who was born s when, when, when the 70s made him a young person. Absolutely. You can. you can use the Voice Dream Reader to access Gutenberg content. You can't, you can't get to Gutenberg directly from the stream, though. There's actually no reason why they couldn't. Um, it's an interesting question. That might be well, another thing again, to ask him to you do. You can transfer a Gutenberg title onto your stream Easily. card yeah. and use your stream synthetic voice to read it and navigate it. So I just recently came into the 21st century and read the, the mm. book of Zero Comic Mind and I was getting the second generation of the Zero Comic Mind. Oh. But um, I, I remember there being some options and I couldn't remember what that was. Absolutely, absolutely you can. All right, so the other things that are out there that people might be less familiar with, I have a library service I like. I am a proud carrier of my Watertown Public Library card because you know what? My property tax supports that space. I have a Miami-Dade County one too. And I... Uh, and I've had to advocate for them to get accessible technology in the library, so I decided it was time for me to uh, get some attention from them uh, in a way different than, well, let's face it, most libraries, when a blind person walks through the door, they want to refer you to the library for the blind and send you right back out, so you might as well have a revolving door. So, so I'm trying not to fall into that because, again, this... Lazy Brian before you, it'd be so much easier to just do that. 
but there are services available through so many of our public libraries. What did we discuss a moment ago? Uh, Overdrive would be an example of those kinds of services. By the way, you're going to hear me mess with this and bring this up. I'm having to hunker down anytime I talk into the microphone. So if it, if it comes and goes, that's the reason why. I've just extended it to its maximum length. All right. Do you want to trade places? No, I'm fine. You stay where you are. You're older than me. You just told us. <coughs> Thank you, Johnny. <laughs> I, my library is a subscriber to a service called Hoopla, H-O-O-P-L-A. And I'm going to open the Hoopla app on my phone. Hoopla alert. Secure text field. Character mode. Insertion pointed start. Enter your Hoopla. Secure text field. Enter your Hoopla password. Enter my Hoopla password. Secure text field is editing. Character mode. Insertion pointed star. Let me see if I can do that. There you go. Hoopla is news to me, by the way, so Brian's, Brian's educating me now. Us old people don't know about Hoopla. Oh, I did a double G by accident, so I got nine characters. I, rather than doing a demo of that, though, I think it would be safer just to say to you, with this service, I, as a taxpayer carrier of my local public library card, uh, get a username and password, and I can borrow up to 10 titles a month free of charge. And those titles can come from books, tens of thousands, uh, movies, tens of thousands, well, not tens of thousands, but no, more movies than I'll ever see. Um, music, either song by song or album by album, and comic books and archived TV shows, all using this one service. Now, it so happened that while I was complaining to my library that they kept subscribing to services that were inaccessible to me, my company, the Carroll Center for the Blind, was approached by a company called Hoopla to evaluate their website and evaluate their app. And we did so um, and submitted this doesn't work, that doesn't work, we suggest you do this, we suggest you do that. And they impl implemented every one of our suggested changes in less than two weeks. So it's a fully accessible service, and it's available through thousands of public libraries. Thousands of them. So ask your public library, are they a Hoopla subscriber? So I have a question for you, mm -hmm. Brian. Uh, and we should probably say that this is th this is not the only place where this model is used. It's also used in actual libraries for the blind in other countries, um, the, where the model is you don't get to do what you essentially can do with Bard here, which is to download a book and essentially it's yours, whether whether if you choose to keep it. Um, in in these books and with Hoopla. You, you essentially have a limited time to read the book or it goes away. So It's uh, a 30, in this particular case, it's a 30-day checkout period, just like if you checked out a library book. And if you want to recheck it out, then in 30 days, you recheck it out. 
So my question, Brian, is, is th does that put a different set of values on you? Or do you find yourself reading more if you do it that way um, rather, than, rather than, than simply saying, oh, the heck with it, um, I, I'm not going to bother to read this? I guess the answer is this. Because I worked with the company, I got involved in it. And since I got involved with it, I decided that um, I'm going to put it on there. And because it'll go away in 30 days, if I don't read it, guess what I do? I read it. it I read it. See, that's what I was thinking. It takes priority because that NLS book is going to be there it, yeah, two weeks exactly. from now when I get around to it. This one may not be because although I can check it out again, the libraries actually in their contract with these companies contract to have a certain number of copies of that out at a time as if it's on their shelf. And, okay? and, and that's also true of, of the libraries for the blind or libraries for the physically did, did say, whatever they are in other countries so that you can be on a waiting list for a book for a fairly long time. Exactly, exactly. Mind you, what was it Judy was saying? Equitable? Yes. So it's very equitable. We're no, we're no different than any other. Yeah. There are times you want to, want to get a little leg up on everybody else, but this is not it. This is not it. So I like hoopla and the concept of hoopla a lot. But I have to tell you that I've had the joy, and I do mean that, quite literally, of going to a number of library conferences, the American Library Association, Public Library Association, um, what was it, uh, Michigan, Georgia. I just went to the Texas Library Association conference. Take ACB's conference and quadruple it, and you'll get a rough idea of how big that conference is. And in all of these, I went to the exhibit halls. And in all of them, my one purpose in going to the exhibit hall was to go look at services like Hoopla and find out if they were accessible. The vast majority of these services are not. Um, and this is that chicken and the egg scenario. Nobody asks their public library, is what you've just bought accessible to me or not? And therefore, they don't ask the vendor, are well, they accessible or not? Even even if we ask, it it sometimes doesn't matter. And I I guess, I mean that's that's another whole story. I mean I, I am I am almost to the point now where I think, uh, where I think it's another it's it's a job that Lou ought to take on, in in terms of, um, starting to launch some issues, um, at at the federal level because clearly under Title II, public libraries are are entities that that ought to be accessible and they don't have any excuses not to be. We told ours that in Miami-Dade County, and essentially they became it. Um, but we made loads of enemies by doing it because it meant that some of the content that was available through, for instance, the inaccessible elements of overdrive were no longer bought by our library. Yeah, there's going to be pushback to some things. Uh, if people who have been paying attention to accessible content at colleges and universities regarding video content that they've been using in their lectures. Um, there's a consortium called edX that had a little chat with the fine people at the Department of Justice at the 
the just Department of Justice said, come on down, and um, we want to have a, just a little chat with you about the state of the industry. And they went away and eventually signed an agreement to make all of their video content accessible. Berkeley College, on the other hand, decided that if they were going to be forced to caption their video collection, then they'll simply take it down. They just... UC Berkeley. Simply took it down. They took it away. You know, it, so, so think about this in a library sense now, right? So when we pressure our public library to buy only known accessible services like Hoopla, then to some degree they're going to have to stop doing some of the things they're doing. Uh, and we need to advocate for their procurement process to take accessibility in as a must-have, an absolute must-have. So when you sign a contract or send out a bid, then accessibility makes your bid a valid bid. So I'm going to ask you the question, though, Brian, because it's the elephant in the room. Should we feel guilty about what happened at UC Berkeley? No, they're playing chicken, and they're going to lose. It's going to be a temporary loss, but they will lose. Right. So, if they've sold their service and had it paid for at any place with federal money, they must have put together something called a VPAT. V-P-A-T. Voluntary Accessibility... I can't remember what all the letters stand for. And that will be on file. And you should simply tell your library, ask your vendor for their VPAT on accessibility. And if they can't produce it, then it isn't accessible. So if they can produce it, it doesn't mean it is because it's called a what? Voluntary. Right. Who's doing the evaluation of whether or not that is accessible? Let the company themselves. Let me tell you the other thing that I recommended for the college that I worked at, which was a Title II entity. Um, and I think they've done it, and I think it's actually made a difference. What I required them to do, um, because uh, th the truth is that, that virtually every entity that's looking at getting the business of the largest community college in the country, when asked whether their stuff is accessible, is going to say, oh, hell yeah. No question. Um, so um, what I asked the college to do was to introduce a procurement waiver. And the procurement waiver essentially says, uh, I hereby certify that my stuff is accessible. Um, if, if it's not, I hereby, if, if there are elements that just by a tiny mistake happen not to quite work okay, um, I undertake to fix it. Um, and they, they will generally sign that. Um, and, and I'm happy to say that Miami-Dade College, largely with my pushing, has, has held feet to the fire over that. Um, so that's another way to sort of get around that. You put the onus on the vendor um, to actually be responsible 
for fixing inaccessibility issues, which is where it belongs. But unfortunately, the law doesn't require the vendor to fix it, but the law does require that libraries or colleges not buy stuff that isn't accessible. So, it, so the onus is on us to put the onus on the public entities to do the right thing. They can't spend your dollars on an inaccessible thing. And by the way, the proof is not something you have to provide. The proof is something they have to provide. That's correct. They don't have to if you don't ask. And don't make asks of any bureaucracy orally. Correct. Only write, do it in writing and only accept answers in writing. That creates the paper trail that makes it legally binding. Anyway, enough of advocacy stuff. I, I read for fun. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but that's my, my intent anyway. So one of the things that I remember hearing a number of years back is Google was going to invest whatever it took to scan and store every book ever done. Every book ever done. And needless to say, some people, and put it in public domain, and incidentally, some people took objection to that, and so they kind of half-backed off. But it's still kind of being done anyway. It's more a matter of, uh, what was it, in the service about uh, gay officers, et cetera, et cetera, don't ask, don't tell, right? It's a don't ask, don't tell kind of situation we live in. If I, as a library patron of the Perkins Library for the Blind, need a book, Notice the word need, not want, need. I can demonstrate that I have a need for a given title. It's being used by my agency as a core curriculum, whatever it might be. Then I can call up the talking book library and say, I need this book. First thing they're going to do, they're going to do what? A title search through all the means they know of. Second, if that doesn't work, they're going to pick up the phone and call their friends at the Boston Public Library. Now, every state has what they call the library of last resort, where things go. It, you, they may call it your state library or something. In Massachusetts, we simply pay the Boston Public Library to be our library of last resort. And they- it's where old books go to die. They are a participant in the Google Scan Project. They've set aside a room, and there's a staff there who are going through the entire Boston Public Library scanning every book, every book. And they got massive kinds of scanners that you and I could only dream oh, but about. Oh, they're so cute. And if Perkins Library calls Boston Public Library because they're part of the same library system, they're funded primarily through the Board of Library Commissioners, a, a state agency, they will say, sure, give us everything. We'll see whether we've got it on the shelf. If we have got it on the shelf, we'll scan it out of turn. And you should have it in four days. And that's what they do for us. A four-day turnaround from request to the e-text in your hand of any book in the Boston Public Library. That's scannable. Let's face it, there are some books that simply aren't scannable, right? If you want to read it in the original handwritten Greek, even if they have it on the shelf, you ain't getting it, right? But otherwise, that's kind of the world I want to live in. 
I don't expect everybody to convert every title into an accessible form and set it on a shelf, but I do want to get to a position where if I ask for it in an accessible form, that in a reasonable period of time, it's going to be made available to me in that form. The Chafee Act, right, says you don't have to get copyright permission on a title-by-title -title basis if the end result is stored in a specialized format, defined specialized format. What would that be? A BRF is a specialized format. Absolutely. And uh, protected daisy probably is. Protected daisy is because it's protected daisy, right? And they do it in protected daisy. So I can put it on my Victor Reader stream and listen to it. How do other people, I'm, I'm interested in, like Paul said when we started this whole thing, it's not the Paul and Brian show, it's the All of Us show. So where other interesting places have you gone to get titles from sources other than the ones we've already discussed? I can't believe that. Ah, no, no. So you probably have an interest in particularly specialty kinds of content. Uh, let's see, I think of somebody here near the front row here, Judy, who is a knitter, if I recall correctly, and right? A and a wine enthusiast. And there are an awful lot of special collections out there. You don't go to any particular place for that kind of information other than the ones we're, we've talked about here? You go and you get your information, not so much as a published book, yeah. but articles. Yeah. You, buy, you get your information in smaller bits and bytes. Okay. Our friend Jim Crott called me the other day, mm -hmm. right? And Jim collects what, Paul? Music boxes. Music boxes, right? So he wanted access to their magazine and asked whether or not, you know, I could. He finally got their attention and then and it turns out that they were publishing it in PDF, but in image PDF. So with a bit of advocacy, they're now publishing it in accessible PDF, which is a really great step in the right direction. But he still is struggling at getting some of the information uh, that he gets from other sources, and it takes personal advocacy to get access to some of those unique types of things. Like he's trying music to, box catalog. He's trying to get the 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 um, he's trying to get Bookshare uh, to to put in priority uh, the 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 scanning and publication of the Encyclopedia of Music Boxes. Yes, absolutely. Well, and that's why that's why what Kim talked about the other day is so exciting. Um, I'm talking about archive um, because oh sorry Karen Kenninger oh, I think Kim talked about it too actually but maybe she didn't um, but um, I, I have taken I have taken a look and, and, and made a little effort to use it and, and it's, it's kludgy to use right now which is what the problem is with it and I think when it gets fixed it's going to be wonderful because essentially it's 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 deep 
Um, um, it 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 is a, it is an outfit located out in California, um, and I don't know whether it's an offshoot of the Google thing or whether it's entirely separate. Um, and I'm not sure we'll ever really know, but but it's this huge, this huge repository of of books, many of them still in copyright, um, that that are currently available in online formats that are perfectly readable by folks who are blind, and have for the last five or ten years, if not longer, been made legally accessible to those of us who are blind or print disabled. Um, however, their website has made it very difficult to get the books to, to download. Um, yes. Um, and it is it, it, the, the, the difference is that, that there, it, there are a huge number uh, of, of books on Internet Archive um, that we can't find anywhere else in accessible format. And all of their, all of their formats, that is, they, they create an accessible version of virtually everything that's in Internet Archive. Which is which is pretty amazing. And I don't know enough about. Yeah, I don't know enough about that field. I don't know if you do, Brian, um, to be able to offer very much meaningful advice, except to say to you that what I would do is I would, I would go ahead and go into Google search, and I would put in the the, the names of some of the the more common guides like Schwann, and see what comes up. Um, because I'm always amazed when I think there's no likelihood that something's going to be found on the Internet, Google search finds it, and, 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 and there actually is stuff there that I had no idea was there. And, uh, you, and you sometimes have to sort of look backwards because the web page is titled something that has nothing to do with what's actually on it. There's actually a group of disabled gamers out there. Uh, it's cross-disability, 
but it does absolutely include blind gamers. And so what I would suggest that you do, God, I hate saying this, Google it, but Google, Google it and literally say disabled gamers, and you will find some resources that would pretty much astound you. Well, actually, blind gamers is a good thing to Google as well. Absolutely. There, there is a guy up in Canada whose name is eluding me at the moment. Um, who for 20 years published the Blind Gamers magazine. And, there, there, and all, there's of the, all of the issues are available on, on, on the net. Yeah. So there's all that kind of stuff going on. But again, when it comes to specialty content, when we want to not just read a good novel, but to find information about things, we've got a couple of ways to do it, not the least of which is things like Google and Bing and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, those search engines are hugely valuable in that regard. But you know, nine out of ten websites are inaccessible. Before we go beyond the games, let me just mention one more thing. Can I have the mic for a second? I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks. So the other thing is there is a very cool app um, if you have an iPhone. Do you have an iPhone? Me? Yeah. 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 Okay. So if, if, if you have not downloaded an ad called Frots, F-R-O-T-S, you need you, uh, it may be Z at the end, but I'll, I'll tell you in a sec. But if you haven't downloaded, go get it. Um, and and also any of you who have um, who have humanware products like um, um, anyway, um, what these are is um, interactive adventure games, um, and you can also Frots has oh, I don't know fifteen or twenty games on there. But they also have access to and can use the the usual um, file format that games are created in. They're almost always fully accessible. And there are the the last I heard, there were 177,000 games out there. <coughs> um, and incidentally, you can play those, and and have been for the last 10 years, been able to play them on all Braille notes. So anyway. Brian. We, uh, we apologize. We get wrapped up into a topic and we forget that. Yes, I'm going to, I'm going to say that. Um, when I woke up in my hospital bed and there was a talking book machine there, it was perfectly capable of, of playing back voices I didn't know to read to me. But also on the other side of the bed was my mother and later my father, and they read to me. There's nothing wrong with, and there's something wonderfully communal with reading aloud as part of your lifestyle. Um, we do that in our household all the time. Uh, Vicki, uh, who lives with Kim and I, uh, will sit down and we'll read the, the town paper. It's accessible to me if I wanted to go on Newsline to do it, 
but it's not a family thing. And we, we enjoy doing it because reading should be a family-friendly thing. Now, we realize we ran over on this particular topic, but um, one of the things I'd like to end with on this is if any of you come up with a clever way for us at a future Lua slash BRL event to provide some hands-on opportunity, we talk a good game, but there's such a difference between what you academically know and what you can do that maybe you would get some value out of an opportunity to learn how to do it, not just talk about it. So give that some thought, would you? All right, so the subject then is, Mr. Paul, this is your, your gig. Well, I, the, yeah. I, I, I know, I am, but see, I am, Elsie, what were you expecting, the, the, the Anthony door? Elsie, is that what you were expecting? Th- thank you. That's Anthony Doerr. So let's do that for a few minutes, okay? Because we don't have a long time, and we can also we can also make it a library without walls topic um, for later um, in the year. We had actually decided earlier because not too many people in the room had read it um, uh, that that we were going to postpone that discussion and just talk in in more general terms. But I don't see because we don't have a lot of time. I don't see any reason why we can't all share about that particular book, which might encourage some others to read it. So, um, Elsie, you are in trouble because you raised the issue. You get to go first. Um, tell, us, tell us what you thought about the book, and, and um, I will bring you the mic if you talk. And, um, and then you can tell us what you thought of the book and what you liked about it. Got it. It's, it's my well. Ralph is probably going to do much better at this. Is it Dor from Boise, Idaho? That am I? Yeah. Okay. Is Dor a Boise, Idaho author? Oh, is he really? I I believe so. Oh, I didn't know that. And so I just wanted to bring that out. I used to live in Idaho and. Okay, what I want to say about the book itself, it's so mystical in one way, and it's got all of these levels of mystery and intrigue and history. And the one thing I loved about it is the fact that the heroine was reading um, 20,000 Leagues Beneath the Sea in Braille. She had received this uh, copy from, I believe, her grandfather. But because of the fact she was a Braille user and there's gems in it and and the little boxes, it just was so intriguing to me to have this uh, and the different levels of intrigue with the history and so on and so forth. And uh, because it is so... (laughs) <laughs> wonderfully written also it keeps you in in your interest very very well Arlo do you want to add anything to that no I don't she, she really <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Steal the mic back. All right. 
So just for the record, for those of you who haven't read the book, this is essentially a book that takes place during World War II, um, and it's essentially about a young girl who is blind and her interaction with a German officer. She's French, he's German, and um, as, as some people have said, it's extremely uh, well-written, and there's, there's some question um, in the minds of some of us who've read the book what we think of the portrayal of blindness in the book. Um, so who else would like to talk about the book? I uh, would. So Anne first. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass a better mic runner. got the book for Christmas and the guy who gave it to us is a librarian so he always gives us these edifying books that he insists we must read but actually one of my church members was talking to me about this book and she said well this is a really good book and there's a blind girl in it and her father makes her models of the city out of wood and they're little tiny models and she can feel them and figure out her way around the city and I went Gee, that's kind of odd. But when I read the book, um, some of the things that sort of niggled at me, they didn't bother me a lot. I went ahead and read the book. But this girl learned Braille kind of on her own, apparently. She didn't go to school um, at a school for the blind, and I know they have them in France. Her father was a very intelligent library person, curator of a library, and she somehow she learned Braille by herself, which I guess you can do. And the father taught her to find her way around, and he did some really cool stuff there, I think. Um, she was sort of independent. She was actually part of the resistance in, in that uh, town where she lived. And she was good at it because nobody expects a blind person to be involved in the resistance, for God's sake, so... Um, it, it is a sweet, kind of bittersweet book, and I do recommend it. The person that read it on our CD did an excellent job, and it was so good that we actually convinced our housemaid, who doesn't read anything, and he listened to it and liked it. So, here. Yeah, Anthony D O R E R. Oh, okay. I would pick up kind of where Anne left off and say that as a piece that characterizes blind individuals as functional and capable and able to do things, it portrays a blind person in a a very positive light. I worry sometimes about books that make all of us out as super blind persons and I think this dances closely to that precipice without perhaps going over it. The things that bothered me along the lines that Anne was talking about wasn't just how she learned Braille. It wasn't that she was able to use a three-dimensional map created by her father to learn certain things about travel and orientation and mobility. But while 
a school for the blind or being educated outside of the home was never mentioned. Even in wartime, she seemed to magically always have a cane, and I assumed for it to be effective in doing what she needed to do with it, that it was always of the right length, or at least a length that was functional for her. And none of the discussion about how difficult it is to, in areas of deprivation, uh, maintain that kind of uh, accessibility to needed materials. Yeah, we know she only got maybe one book a year to start out, which perhaps makes it all the more incredible that she learned to read Braille as well. And then by the end of the book, she is a uh, biological researcher uh, with a doctorate's degree at a university. And while that's an entirely achievable thing for a person who is blind, I guess I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that transition that could have made it a little bit more real for me and not quite so mystical. But the plot was good, the writing was absolutely incredible, and despite those things that I would consider weaknesses, I found reading the book to be absolutely spellbinding. It's a wonderful book, but it's not without uh, its imperfections. I read this book, this Judy, because I read an excerpt from it in Choice Magazine listening. The excerpt was an amazing piece about a young German boy and and how he came to be enrolled in one of the top Nazi schools. And what interested me was I had never read a book that I was from, in a sense, the Nazi perspective where there was a sympathetic character. And this boy was incredibly sympathetic. And he, there's also Dora glosses over. He becomes increasingly um, disillusioned with the whole Nazi uh, setup. But we're, we still see him do things that when you actually try to fit that in with the way his character's been developed, frankly, don't make sense. It's, an, uh, it, it's, an olig- it's, it's like her magically transforming into a professor. He magi- you know, we don't see enough of his development. In t- t- we see him pe- see people brutally treated and stuff, but there's just not enough evolution of this character before we believe that he's transformed. But the reason I could... St- I mean, I squirm at the portrayal of this girl who counts her steps, and, and it's just... It, it's cringeworthy. But... <laughs> But it is only part of a much bigger story. And, and I actually thought the way she learned at the museum in, in Paris was credible. Uh, she just followed her, she followed her father around, and people showed her things, rocks and seashells and stuff. And so by the time she actually became a wise old woman, um, I I could understand this, but I think Dora really, as Michael said, walked that fine line between uber blind person. Um, but I'm I'm willing to forgive this book a bunch. <laughs> End of my comment. Okay. Anybody else? Anyone else? Brian. 
The reason I really liked him and, and he was believable to me is his family background. And he was the one that developed the radio triangulation for uh, finding uh, people who were uh, working f with the resistance. And part of his, his uh, power and of mathematics to do this radio transmission and find the heroin in, yes. And I, I just think that's pretty much true how that could have happened. If you were a person that loved math and you had support by the people that you don't necessarily agree with, then I think when you understand how that happened and how all of a sudden he realized that they were going out killing these people. And that astounded him. And uh, so I think he was compassionate and he did have his sense of compassion and because of his family. Thank you. I'm done. Okay, I like this book because while a character was blind in the book, I didn't read this as a book about blindness. It was a book about people being swept up in incredible times and how they individually met with it. Um, I agree uh, just now that the whole concept of being really interested in radio and becoming so obsessed with that thing that you don't worry so much about how that thing is being used and until it gets kind of pushed into your face and you suddenly realize there's a moral question in all science. Think of those scientists who dealt with uh, nuclear weapons, for example, right? A lot of them spent the rest of their lives trying their damnedest to make nuclear things valuable outside of weaponry. And I can see aha moments going on as a result of that. The other thing that I think is true, and I've, I've met a number of quite young people from around the world who live in third world nations. And trust me, France in World War II was pretty damn close to a third world nation in terms of what resources were available and, and that kind of thing. It's amazing what, for example, the kids I met from... Um, Braille Without Borders from Tibet. And, you know, there they have open sewers along the gutters. And they simply use their canes to pole vault over them. When they're going through town, they are counting their steps when that's the only way to do it. And they are listening to things and smelling things and paying attention to the time of day because certain things happen then and not other times. We have such an industrialized West look at things that we don't realize that if you don't have these things, you cope anyway. You know, uh, So I'm not sure I would think of her particularly as a super blind person as much as she's a person who had a set of opportunities right, that came her way from her unique 
circumstances, a father who was incredible at making models. That's pretty, you know, that can happen. Somebody can have a dad, not every dad, but her dad did. Um, and this ability to, um, I th- the one part I find amazing is how people can keep a positive spirit for as long as they clearly do. But I've had sighted people look at me and say to me, I don't know, I just couldn't do it. Well, it's not like we chose this game, did we? (laughs) It's not that I had a choice in doing it, but if I allowed it to beat me, then I'd be my own worst enemy, right? So I think these people are, are similar in this book. I also think that while I really agree with you, Judy, about characters needing time to develop, I don't know what part of the book I would have cut out to give the time to do that, right? I think that the author probably made a conscious decision not to do that. Uh, and not for the sake of plot, but for the sake of touching the edges of so many things in such a complicated world. And it's a habit. Whether it's a habit to force them or not, I believe it can be passed by Yeah, I gotcha. I really think that of all the books I've read, this would absolutely be in the top 100. Uh, I'm probably less than that, to be honest with you. Uh, and I find it fascinating. One of the values of people doing these kind of group activities about a book is I'm embarrassed to say that fully half of the books that I consider to be the top 100 are ones I would never have read had somebody not suggested it and I've been kind of forced into it, its first few pages. Uh, was it uh, Secret Life of Life? The Secret Life of Bees was such a book for me. By the description, I would never have checked out that book. And I love it. It's in my top 100. Anybody else have any comments about this book? You know, one of the other things I'm also made aware of is... I'm super sensitive. When there's a blind person, oh, what's the world going to think about blind people with this, that, or the other thing, right? Uh, Quite honestly, they're not going to build their opinion about blind people solely on this book. It's part of a montage of their exposure or not. I also cringe when it deals with the super blind. My hero is the guy who learns Braille at 80 so he can read twin vision books with his grandchildren. He's my hero, not the guy who climbs the mountains. It's just not the case. But you know, the guy that climbed the mountain got the sighted person's world's attention. And the guy that's learning Braille didn't. So I guess we can't live with all of one and none of the other. Anybody else? If you haven't, I don't think anybody who read it would tell you not worth it. Everybody who read it likes it all all the light we cannot see by door what called gentlemen gentlemen in moscow okay that's what i wanted to end today with is a quick run around recommend me a book gentlemen in moscow recommended read 
That's fine. And the other great titles, people will say, you really ought to read this book. Just one. The Whistling Season. Excellent. I don't know about you, but now that there's so much out there, I read constantly, and uh, no sooner do I finish the last page of the previous book than I'm reading the first page of the next book, and I'd be hard-pressed to tell you the title or the author of that thing I read unless I found it incredibly mind-blowing, the kind where you read a paragraph, you've got to set it down to just contemplate that idea for a moment not keep reading and, and lose it in the, in the mix. For me, Paul turned me on to that book, for me, which was Beggars in Spain. Yeah. And, that, and there are actually three books in the series. But uh, Beggars in Spain is the best. It is. No question. Is it the first? It is the first, yeah. It is. It's worth reading the others, but it, it, it is number one. It is written by um, Nancy Press. Spain. And it, it's, it's nothing like what the title suggests. It's a science fiction novel. K-R-E-S-S. And it, 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 put simply, um, it's a book that asks the question, what would happen if we made a genetic modification in, uh, in, in, in some of the best and the brightest so that they no longer ever needed to sleep? And again, it's just one of those questions about to me, it opened the door to questions about uh, eugenics and privilege, and privilege, and oh, and, 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 and crowd psychosis, and, and oh, it just goes on and on. The number of things that it touches the edges of, and you'll want, you'll read something, and it'll, it'll explain it in a way you never thought of before, and you'll want to set it down and just ah, oh, so many, so many aspects of that. Any other books? Nope. Okay. Yes. Split two cool books that go together. No. Yes. Threads of Grace. Thread of Grace. Okay. because she has written in such a variety of milieus and such a variety of styles um, because the, the Sparrow book is, um, is, is, is essentially a science fiction book.
I heard an interview with her about the new book. The, the one genre I cannot stand. <laughs> and Paul, you probably like it. Alternative histories. Uh, no, I don't like it. I hate them, hate them, hate them. <laughs> anyway, I just love books. And uh, any way I can get them is the way I want them. People who say, what are you going to do when you retire? I'm going to read more. You know? The last book I will talk about is one that's only available on Bookshare, but it still remains my favorite book of all time, I think. Um, it's a book called Scalagrig. Um, and I recommend it to, I've recommended it everywhere I go. S-K-A-L-L-A-G-R-I-G-G. S-K-A-L-L-A-G-R-I-G-G. And it's written by a guy called William Horwood. Um, Yes, and it is uh, well. I it's 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 first. I mean, it's certainly on my top five best books ever, and it's certainly it's certainly the best book on disability that I think's ever been written. It's a novel, and it's about seven hundred pages long. So fun to read. A G R I G G. Yeah, and and you'll um. And I'd be very surprised if you don't cry. Since June of 1994 through May of this year, I've read 1,751 books. Oh, retirement sounds so sweet. Anyway, we're going to say good night, Dick. And uh, <laughs> there you go. And uh, thank you all for being here. <laughs>